Psalm 29, and we're going to finish up our lesson this morning on shepherding families, fathers in the home, and we we have saved the uh, the best for last, or I should say most convicting in, in my case um, for last. It's the longest part of our lesson, so we saved it for... Uh, for a, uh, a day all to ourselves, and we'll get there in just a minute. We've got a video like we normally do. But let's read Psalm 29 and then uh, take some time for, uh, uh, for prayer. We've got a bunch of folks out today traveling and doing a number of, of other things, so we uh, praise the Lord for you. This is a Psalm of David, and it's all about the Lord's supremacy. There is a verse that I'll point out to you toward the end that is really breathtaking. It's probably one of the most significant verses in the Bible that declares God's sovereignty and his supremacy over everything. All right? Verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. So David's call to worship is to ascribe to the Lord something specific, what is due to his name. Glory and strength, the glory that's due to his name. And then he begins to do that in verse 3. The supremacy of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory, uh, the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. And Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple everything says glory. And here's the verse. The Lord sat as king... At the flood, the Lord will give, the Lord sets as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Um, let's point out a couple things to you. One, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. God's a verbal God. We've talked about this before. The very first verse of the Bible Talking, talks about God speaking. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So by the voice of the Lord, God creates uh, out of nothing. He has that kind of, kind of, of, of power. Um, and so here is God's supremacy over the forces of nature, over human beings, over everything that he's, over everything that he's created. But that verse that I was mentioning to you is in verse 10. I mean, think about what this says. The Lord, now notice it's L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, you see that? 
that's the covenant name of God. That's Yahweh. That's the name that that God uh, God reveals Himself as to Moses. Um, so this is the the God who is uh, is the one of covenant mercy, you know, committed to to His people, to His purposes, to His plans, and He sat as King. At the flood. Now, what's that talking about? The the floods of Jordan. That's the flood. This is Noah's flood. This is the Lord sat over the judgment that wiped out everybody on the earth except for except for Noah and his and his family. And then it says, "Yes, the Lord sets as king forever. He'll set over the judgment that is." That is to come. Now notice the contrast in verse 11. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. So the Lord sets even as king over judgment. Those who are destroyed in judgment. He is supreme. He's sovereign over that. And yet he treats his people very kindly. And isn't that exactly what how he reveals himself in Exodus? He's merciful and gracious. Slow to anger forgiving thousands, yet he will not allow the guilty to go uh, unpunished. And we get to be in verse 11 and not in verse 10 um, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we are blessed people, aren't we? Um, Let's pray and do exactly what this psalm says. So Father, we come before you this morning and um, what do we say? Other than exactly what you have said about your yourself, how foolish um, it would be to to think up uh, words or dream up imaginations about God that would come from our fallen minds and our human emotions, when you have given us an entire book, an entire Bible, an entire songbook here, where you describe yourself who you are, what you are like. And so, Father, we use your words to, to praise um, your attributes. You, you are supreme. You rule over all. You are first in, uh, in the universe. You're first in everything. We want you to be first in our hearts. We thank you that you, that you are a holy God, a God of justice. You... you speak and create and you command and uh, judgment falls and yet we get the privilege to be your people um, by sheer grace we surely don't deserve it and you have saved us um, to the praise of the glory of your grace and so we praise you we give you glory um, all because of your grace and unto your grace we ask you to bless our time together and teach us open our eyes in Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, we have a little video this morning, and the title, some of you are already joking about, the key to understanding why parenting is so hard. Is, is parenting hard? If you haven't done it yet, you'll figure out it is it's really hard. And Paul Tripp is going to tell us why, and then he's going to encourage us before we get to our final lesson. It 
has probably drawn out of you things that you didn't think were there. And I think the Bible is an incredibly helpful in helping us to understand why this is so challenging. Think about this. What, what is parenting? It's a flawed person who's commissioned to give direction and guidance and help to a flawed person. Does that discourage you? Well, I'm not done. But with a faithful God. You see, it. parenting is hard because it's a sinner with a sinner. And what's the DNA of sin? 2 Corinthians 5.15 tells us it's selfishness. I don't want to be disagreed with. I don't want to be challenged. I don't want somebody to make my day difficult. I want children who say, yes, Father, I will forthwith go and obey you because you, sir, are wise. I don't get that. And so it's the selfishness of my child that hooks my selfishness. It's important to understand that there's a reason why it's a struggle. But it's also important to understand that God knew you would struggle. So at some point he would come, live the life that you couldn't live, Die the death you should have died so you would have every single thing you need as a parent. You see, it's not a mystery why this is hard. Because of that, God has entered your life with his grace. He knows it's hard. He doesn't judge you because you find it hard. He meets you with help. It's good stuff, isn't it? The DNA of sin is self. He reminds us of that. My favorite part of that is where you guys laughed. You know, that's exactly what we want. That's what we want from our wives. That's what we want from our kids. That's what we want from our employees. Whatever it is, is to everyone to realize that I am the most important person in the universe, um, and uh, and you need to you need to follow me. Well, uh, look at page one hundred because he told us that what we need. God's already provided. Part of that is the the the, the beginning of that is the grace of of Christ. Um, you think marriage is hard as a Christian? You ought to try it as an unbeliever. I did, uh, and ended up two weeks away from uh, from divorce. Um, try parenting as an unbeliever, and as I like to say uh, in in counseling, or I've said it from the pulpit, um, you. Even this morning, wherever you're at, have a dysfunctional family. Uh, and you came from a dysfunctional family because that's what sin is. It's dysfunction. And so we're all the same from that standpoint. There's nobody in here who has, you know, perfect little little homes and little children and little little wives and and, and little hearts. We're, we're all sinful, and that manifests in a lot of different ways. Now... Um, I have a pastor friend of mine that's a fourth-generation pastor. And I can remember marveling the first time that I heard him, that I heard him preach. And I, I, I started to do something that you're not supposed to do. Uh, he's much younger than I am. And I started listening to him thinking, um, man, this guy's really good. He's a lot better than I am, you know, even though he's 10 years, he's 10 years younger. Um, and then I obviously caught myself because that's the one thing that you're not supposed to do is compare yourself to one another. You always find somebody better. You always find somebody worse. 
Um, you are who you are before before the Lord. And then it dawned on me one of the things that were, was operating, you know, in his life. There's all kinds of people that are better than you and 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 better than me. But this man had, was a fourth generation pastor. John MacArthur is a fourth generation pastor, and there's a compounding effect of righteousness. And I am a first generation believer. I've only been saved a little over 25 years. I told you I didn't know the the old and the in the New Testament. So. Uh, Rather than allow that to, you know, to, to encourage me toward complacency, um, it drives me to, to make up whatever time, whatever time that, uh, that I'm lost. Wherever you come from, uh, I, have a, I have a family member that, uh, that, that comes from a, a really single-parent background. Um, Tracy comes from single-parent. Her, her parents come from a single-parent background. Her father's dad died when he was uh, somewhere around nine, ten years old, and her mother's dad ran off whenever she was she was really she was really little, and so that dysfunction compounds, uh, and the dysfunction in our heart meets us even in the midst of that, and the opposite can can take place wherever you're at, um, you are in the same boat as everybody in this room. And you're also in the same boat as everybody in this room that, that God's resources are available. And part of those resources is the spirit that lives in you, the Bible, and what we're doing this morning, the church. We, we, need, we need one another. Um, I wish whenever Bailey came along that someone had a grace and granite to teach me what fatherhood actually, actually looked like. I'm still groping around in the dark, and the jury's still out, you know, uh, um, as far as uh, as far as the flaws in in my own parenting, because I just have one out the door, and I still have Isabella that Tracy reminded me. I turned forty nine on Friday, and she reminded me that whenever I turned fifty nine, she would be seventeen. She's still going to be in the house. She's only going to be driving for a few years, so I've got a long runway. Um, but I can do, and you can do, everything right as far as a sinner could do. And that's not going to guarantee that your children are going to go in the right direction. How do we know that? We already looked at Isaiah chapter uh, 1, verses you know, 1 through 3. God describes himself as the parent of Israel, and Israel rebelled against the Lord. Now, if there was ever a perfect parent, it was God himself, right? And God's children went off the rails. And you've seen it. Um, you have seen a home where there will be five kids and and three of them will follow the Lord and two won't. Or, you know, you'll have another home where it's just, I mean, you, from the outside it is a mess. And it probably is a mess on the inside and all three of them will follow the Lord. Or like when you had, uh, we had some biblical counselors here at our conference last time, people that, that are wise and understand the scriptures, the Neuhausers and, and uh, two two children that they have aren't following the Lord. So there's certain things that we can't control, but the Bible tells us what we can do, we should do. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here this morning. We want to be faithful with what the Lord has given us. So we're learning some of these character principles. And the first one that we're learning is trusting in the sovereignty of God. Now I wish, like you, as you go through something like this, you know, it would be... Um, 
I would even take it like the flu shot, you know. I mean, if I could take these and inject them, even if I have to do it every year, once a year, you know, I, I get my sovereignty of God, uh, you know, shot, and now I understand everything about the sovereignty of God, and I'm going to use it. But biblical truth doesn't work that way. Um, Peter said, when he wrote to believers, I'm writing you things that I already told you in person, and I'm writing them to you to remind you and I'm paraphrasing now, and so that you'll have a record of being reminded of that even after I'm gone, even after I'm dead. And we need to be reminded of the same truth over and over and over. That's the reason you need to sit under the proclamation of, of the word uh, and the reason that you never stop learning. Character principle one, trusting in the sovereignty of God. Two, seeing leadership in the home as a stewardship. You are the steward. God is the owner Character principle three, believing in God's word, that's the source, learning how to solve your problems biblically and modeling that for your family. Character principle four, living in humility before God. God gives grace to the humble, and where we ended last time, being a doer and not merely a hearer of the word. And that brings us to the very last one, avoiding exasperating your children. Scripture warns us not to embitter our families or exasperate our children. Now, those are two pretty strong words, aren't they? Embitter and exasperate. And we must be aware of behaviors and tendencies that can exasperate children. Fathers, beware. And I wrote myself a note. Are you? Am I aware of the behaviors and the tendencies that exasperate my children. Because if I'm not aware of them, then I don't know that I'm doing them, and that can happen even, even if I don't intend it to. And so he's going to give us some of those behaviors and tendencies that can lead to exasperation or spiritlessness or... Just resignation that will ultimately lead to despair. You can take the heart out of, out of your children. So someone turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, verse 4. And someone turn to Colossians 3.21. Those are two, our two launch verses this morning. Ephesians 6, 4. Who would read that? Okay. And then somebody will read Colossians 3.21 right after that. Thank you. All right, go ahead. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Okay. Fathers, <coughs> fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. All right, do those verses sound similar? They should, because Ephesians and Colossians are parallel letters. So this is... This is a parallel passage, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3. And yet Colossians 3 adds some information that Ephesians 6, 4 doesn't. But Ephesians 6, 4 has more data there, so we'll start, we'll start with it. Notice all of the, the little nuggets here. Fathers, speaking to fathers, why does Paul speak to fathers? Why doesn't he say mothers? Can mothers exasperate children? <laughs> you better believe they can. Why? Why does he speak to fathers? 
That's exactly right. So this whole egalitarian nonsense is just what it is. It's nonsense. So you, men, me, are the God-ordained leaders in the home. So he's talking to us, and he gives us a command. Do not provoke um, and bring them up. They're, it's a command. Do not provoke, but bring them up. Don't do this, but do, in contrast, do this. You see the contrast, the little but there? Do not provoke your children to, to anger. Um, don't prod them along in your parenting to a, to a bubbling cauldron, a seething that's, that's there, something that lies beneath the, lies beneath the, the surface. Um, you ever got up, as they say, on the wrong side of the, of the bed? There's really no right or wrong side of the bed. The problem's obviously in our hearts, but we, we feel that way whenever we get up. And you try to stuff it, and you try to stuff it, but it just kind of sees and bubbles, and then somebody hits the right button. You know, that's this idea here that there is a, there's, a, there's a seething going on. Because of the way that I am dealing, the way that I am fathering, there's, there's a seething that, that can be there, pressure building. So don't, don't do that. Don't provoke them to that. Notice that it's the idea of, of not, um, you just do one thing one time. It's a pattern that, that just that keeps poking on that same, you know, that, that same issue. Um, I'm not a, I am not a uh, um, familiar with how you, uh, you toughen up, you know, parts of the, of the body, uh, like with martial arts or, or otherwise, but I've seen where they, you know, if you want to toughen up your shins, you just keep hitting the same place, you know, over and over, and your shins can actually get, get toughened up. Well, the, the heart of a child, if you keep poking at the same place over and over and over, it doesn't, it doesn't toughen up. It, it, it actually turns to, to, to anger. Um, and then it can callous, which is the second part. So pain comes first. You keep hitting the same area. That's the idea, provoking them with, with, uh, with poor fathering. Here's the, the contrast to that. Don't bring them along to anger. It indicates a, a motion toward exasperation. But do the opposite. Bring them up. It's the idea of nourishing and being tender. I had a guy that um, was a mentor of mine in my, when I first came to, to the Lord. I went to his office, and he was a, he was a pastor um, at, a, uh, at a college. And his whole, his entire office was filled with plants. And, I mean, a lot of them. And I thought, well, that's that's kind of odd. I didn't take the guys like a you know a, a horticulturalist or anything. And I said, what's the deal with all the plants? I mean, vines going everywhere. And he said, well, I, I do it on purpose. Um, uh, it's a it's a it's a mental picture for the for the students because if I am willing to nurture and tend the plants and keep them living, then then it's an indication to them that I may do the same thing with with their souls. Now, don't read too much into that spiritually because if you go to my office, there's a plant in there that's probably dying, and I care greatly about your souls. I'm here at 6 o'clock in the morning teaching you. 
But the idea is it is nurturing. It, it takes a while to nurture, uh, you know, a, a plant. Um, when you plant a garden, you don't just stick the seed in the ground and the, you know, the, the ear of corn pops out. It's a, it's a process, and you have to weed it. And fathering, a lot of fathering is weeding. Uh, and sometimes I'm the one that, that sows the, the bad seed. So this idea of bringing them up is a nurturing. It's, it's, a, it's a tender care. Um, and I think that you can get the idea that um, there, there are two extremes. Okay. My generation and my background is is more of the manly man kind. Okay, you know, you don't want to be a wimp. Um, you don't want to show weakness. That will that will uh, will be the wrong thing to do. Uh, I, the other extreme is what we have in our culture, where everywhere you look, the men are carrying the babies around in the diaper bag, and it's like this reversal of roles and and they're, uh, they are weak. And the Bible gives us a biblical picture of manhood, and that's, that's what we need to, to aim at. So don't be afraid of this word of nourishing and tender care. If you are like me and, and are growing up, grow up in, in that way, um, if you observe the culture too much on the other you know, on the other side, uh, you know, come hunting with me one time, and, and uh, I'll... I'll toughen you up a little bit. Bring them up in the the discipline and instruction. Nurture, uh, nourish, tender care. This has the idea of something that you continually do, um, not a one-time thing. It's a hands-on thing, not a hands-off thing. And there are two things here, correction, discipline, and instruction. Um Discipline is is both positive and and negative. What do you hear whenever you hear, hear the word discipline? What comes in your mind? What's the first thing that comes in your mind when you hear the word discipline? The rod. The rod. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up; they still paddled in public school. I got paddled in sixth grade. Um, the rod. Yeah. What 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 do you see in the word? Disciple. Disciple. Right. So I always remind myself to try to undo the, the you know, the, I naturally think negative, the rod being spanked, being corrected. Um, and I always think of that negative. And clearly that's part of it. The Bible says that you hate your child if you refuse to spank them. Um, in, obviously, in a biblically appropriate way. I always remind myself of the positive side by, 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 by pronouncing this word, you know, discipling. You know, so it's the idea of of keeping them between the the ditches. You know, you've got a guardrail here, and your your job is to is to keep them out of the ditches. And sometimes that that is the rod, and sometimes that's a word of encouragement. And you're doing that in a in a tender, caring, nourishing kind of of way. Um, and also notice it's it's instruction that goes along with that. So it's not just physical correction or, or being, um, you know, uh, encouraging. There's actually some truth that's, that, that's coming in. That's what actually transforms them. You're modeling it. You're doing it. You're applying it in different stages of, of parenting. Um, 
but you're you're putting truth in their mind. And this word, if Mark Hager was here uh, this morning, he would you know he would be very encouraged by it because it is the word where we get nuthetic counseling. Um, it's nuth. Uh, thank you. This one um, is uh, is two words put together. You probably it probably it probably comes up in your um, English Bible as admonish at times. Um, it's nous, the Greek word for mind, and tithemi, which means to place. So it's to place in the mind. It's to it's to intentionally take someone and put truth in them. So that's the idea of what a father is doing. You're doing it in you know you're not doing this. You're not. Bringing them along to anger, keep poking in the same, you know, in the same place. But you're 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 tenderly uh, tender care and nourishing them in in the correction and putting truth in their mind. And sometimes that means correction because they're not a blank slate, right? Bad thinking comes from within; it comes from the heart. Sometimes, sometimes you have to correct. Um, I think one of the greatest compliments, and I don't have any of my, my kids here this morning, um, so I'll say this one of the greatest compliments that my son, who's already gone, ever gave me was um, he said, Dad, the one thing that you taught me was to always solve my problems with the Bible. I'll always go to the Bible first. Um, and I thought, man, I look back at my parenting, and there's so many things things that I blew it as and failed as. But if my son walked away from my home knowing that God's word was the source and that you should go there first, um, that's massive. Um, and I think this is exactly what this is saying. Um, placing truth in, in the mind. So obviously then you need to know how to solve your own problems uh, biblically. Notice what Colossians 3 21 adds fathers do not exasperate your your children so that the result of a child exas being exasperated well how do you exasperate them you 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 uh, bring them along to anger um, which is is the exasperation and you don't do those other things the result of them being exasperated was is that they'll lose heart spiritless it's a resignation that leads to despair literally you've heard before take the heart out of your of your child um, they are a fellow human being regardless of how old they are and they bear the image of God and so just because they're under your authority and your leadership doesn't mean that they are less than a human being and and, and you need to remember that they also bear the, the image of, of God. So you treat them as that. That goes back to the stewardship principle. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're not your own. You may get them to comply. You may beat them into submission. They may not like the consequences. You may have a child that's naturally um, uh, compliant. And they're all different, right? I mean, if you have more than, than, than one... Um, my oldest was not a compliant child whenever he he started. 
Um, but I could look at Olivia, and she would cry. I mean, it was just just the way that the way that the way that it was. They're all they're all different, but you can actually take the heart out of them, meaning that they'll comply, but but the lights go off. The looking to you for leadership, looking to you for for direction. They're just going to listen to your commands, but but they're not actually going to look to you as the spiritual leader, you know, in the home. Um, and then they're ready the minute that they can get out of there. They're they're out of there. So that's the idea of of being spirit, uh, being spiritless. Well, what creates that? I don't want to do that. Um, how can I keep from doing that to a certain degree? Well, he gives us a list here. What exasperates? What leads them to to lose heart? What are the behaviors and tendencies that can that can that can do that to them? Number one on the list is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in the home exasperates children. And what comes next are two sides to the same to the same coin. Setting standards of holiness that are biblical but not submitting to them ourselves. And the other side of the coin is setting personal standards at the same level as biblical standards. Um, well, is also a form of hypocrisy. Um, there's the proverbial PK and MK and you know all of those other things out there. Uh, I think it's sad that we don't focus on uh, all the ministry families that the Lord uses in a great way like that guy I just mentioned to you is a fourth generation pastor, fourth generation believer, fourth generation pastor. But almost inevitably, if you could actually get inside, now not all the case, this is a generality, but if you talk to some of those PKs or, or MKs, people that have grown up in ministry families, one of the, the A number one things that you're going to hear from a child that goes off the rails is there was hypocrisy in the home. My dad was somewhere at somebody different in the home than he was at church. And that is something that's really, really difficult to, to overcome. Um, presenting uh, yourself in a certain way publicly and being completely different in the home. It's, why do we do that? We fear man. We want to look better than we actually, than we actually are. Um, but who you are is who you are before God, what God sees. And there's a part of you that not even your, your wife or your children see, that God sees. And, and you know, Paul, uh, Mark Hager talks about closing the integrity gap between what we say we believe and what we practice. Well, there's a big integrity gap between what we present publicly and what we are in the home and then what we are before, before God. And that is something that can exasperate your children you know, greatly. It's much better to be a mess and, and, and admit it <laughs> Um, because your children actually can learn from that. It's not your perfections that they learn from. They're not perfect. They need to understand how to fail, how to confess, how to apply the gospel to their lives. And one of the ways that hypocrisy manifests is setting standards of holiness that are biblical, 
Here's the first side of the coin, but then not submitting to them, you know, ourselves. That's pretty obvious. Um, this is what the Bible says, but I do something completely different. That's the pretender. I told you my story in salvation when I when I was unsaved and I went to Pastor Joe and gave him the line, church is full of hypocrites. And he said, you're right, and there's room for one more because I just told him I was a good guy. And there's none that are good. No, no, not one. This is the other one I think is, is, is really tough as a, as a parent. At least I found this one to be tough. Look at B, the other side of the coin. Setting personal standards as the same level as biblical standards. Um, going beyond the text. Taking something that's a principle in the Bible and making it a law. Um, I come from, I mean, I, I, am, I am Baptist, not part of a, of a denominational. Uh, I think fundamentalism was a good thing whenever it started, and I think it morphed into things that it didn't intend to be. So I, I am uh, fundamental in doctrine. Um, ba- Baptist with a, with a capital B, because I see those principles in the, in the scriptures. But I come from a background, and some of you come from a background, where, where, where there was no tearing in, in, in looking at the Bible. You know, you've heard doctrine, convictions, preferences. There's no tearing in that. So the deity of Christ and women wearing pants are, are, are all flattened out. They're all on the same level. They're, they're, they're preached and, and dealt with with the same level of, of intensity or Bible version and, you know, and the Trinity. Um, rather than, than, than having first truths and second truths and trying to, to understand it. And that can, that's hard. I mean, you have to use your brain and, and you have, to, you have to, to go at it. Don't be afraid of the Bible. There's been, as they say, many hammers that have tried to, to wear out the anvil of the Bible. Let God speak. God's word is sufficient. And that includes what he thinks is most important and that he needs to give us in black and white commands because the Bible has clear commands and clear prohibitions and clear doctrines. And then God also knows when he needs to give us a principle um, so that we then have to take that principle and apply it to, to, to life. And so... There are doctrines like a biblical gospel, and then there are convictions like the Baptist component or um, things that that are are secondary in nature. What do I mean by that? Uh, When I use the term heresy, it's something that damns. I understand if you you just take heresy at, at face value, it means error. You know, that's created a faction. So error of any kind, okay? But I think what it, the intent of, of the word is if you believe this, it's going to damn your soul. You're not getting into heaven, okay? So, so I will have fellowship with people that, that are in the gospel. Uh, Presbyterian is in the gospel, even though we disagree greatly about premillennialism, Okay? And I, as you've listened to Revelation, you know I believe that if you just take a natural grammatical hermeneutic, that's exactly what it, it says. So I preach that with, with, with vigor. But somebody who's amillennial is, is in the kingdom. 
you know, now they're going to be shocked there's going to be a literal earthly kingdom with Jesus reigning there, but he's going to be in the kingdom. And I can have fellowship with that, with that, you know, with that brother. That's, a, that's an example of a first truth and a, you know, and, a, and a second truth. And this gets really sticky, I think, for parents because you've lived longer and you know where some if you if a, if your child misapplies one of these principles it it can lead to heartache <laughs> and so when i am my tendency is to say no don't do that um and then if they want to do it anyway tell them that god tells them not to 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 do that and that sets up something really bad because if you tell them that it's a specific command or a prohibition when it's actually a principle they're going to get old enough and smart enough and read the Bible on their own. Um, their wicked hearts are going to want to press against that, and they're going to go, hey, wait a minute. I don't see that there. I was taught this, but that's not actually what it, what it says. And that can set them up to then thinking about what else did, did Dad say was an absolute that's, that's not uh, an absolute. Um, I think of a number of, of, of examples. I can remember um, when, 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 uh, when we were confronted with the idea of listening to uh, certain forms of secular music, country music, you know, or otherwise. And my initial reaction was, why would you want to do that? I listened to Hank Williams Jr. and Led Zeppelin, and that rode down a really bad road, and there are really bad lyrics here, so you should never, you should never listen to that. Um, and it's true if you listen to a secular secular music and you can get you know your palate trained on that. And I'm thinking there's only so many hours of the day, so I want to fill my mind with singing about the Lord and and otherwise. Um, and I could have set that up as a you know as a command from God, but I tried to teach it as a principle. Uh, I tried to to train in that moment to say. You need to understand that all music, um, it's a vehicle for a message. And so most country songs, you know, have to do with adultery or a woman leaving or I'm drunk or, you know, I want to go to the beach and sit in the sun or, or whatever it is. There's a message that's there. Well, what did I do whenever I'm, talk, when I'm talking? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to, to develop discernment in their heart to be able to to be able to, to, to hear that rather than making it something that's not. Maybe that's a bad example for you, but I hope you get the idea. Yeah, Larry? I think it's a great example. Um, I would just add to it because you have to teach that same principle to your kids because there's quote-unquote Christian songs that need to listen to it because there needs to be discernment because it, just because it says it's Christian doesn't mean that it's Amen. is doctrinally correct. Amen. You, you can't just take the germane exactly right um i'll give you a perfect example of that uh i had two of my children come home they went to some place where there was worship music and um i can't think of the the the, the song um was talking about uh god god's grace reckless was that the song? Was it called Reckless? Yeah. Um, where God's grace is reckless. And they were listening to it. 
and if you've ever heard of it, it's it sounds really good. I mean, there's a it's it's got a nice beat to it and those kind of things, and, and there's some really good stuff in the song. But they said, Dad, this this word about God being reckless, it doesn't sound biblical. You know, is that biblical? And so we started talking about what does this word mean and what does it not mean and 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 if if you can develop in that you have you have given them a great tool for life because satan doesn't always come knocking on your door in the little red suit with a pitchfork and say hi i'm the devil i'm here to ruin your life and you say come on in right i mean he's slithery he's he's deceptive um i mean think about our topic on sunday you know, with, with the responses to the Me Too movement and other things, anything that you find from the culture is a perversion, um, and it's a camouflage. The whole environmental, Clay and I were talking about this yesterday, the whole environmental, um, you know, global warming, all of that, you may think that's a political deal, but that's part of the cosmos. The Bible tells us that we live on a disposable planet that God's given to us. The Lord's going to globally warm this planet one day into fervent heat and out of existence and that actually distracts people and it it abuses the poor because they're the ones that have the fossil fuel resources in the middle of africa or wherever to survive i mean it's great to to you know to sit in a nice pristine apartment in germany and talk about global warming but talk to the guy in the middle of africa you know who has to burn you know dung in order to in order to cook so i mean all of these philosophies of the world that are there are there and you are doing a wonderful service to your children if you teach them how to discern how to dissect and to and to pull it apart and, and i just want to encourage you if you're like me the tendency of personal standards putting them on the same level as biblical standards you may have a really good motive there it's not like that you want to over control your children's life I didn't get saved till I was 24, so I know where some of these things can lead, and so I'm 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 really hesitant to, you know, to to open the door, and that's part of your job is to is to guard the door. So let me give you a principle that I've tried to use, tried to use, and I asked myself the question: when they're going to do something or wanting to do something that I may think I don't know about that. I ask the question, will it bring irrevocable consequences if it turns out as bad as I think it could? Will this bring irrevocable consequences in their life? And if it is something that will bring irrevocable consequences, then I have a more tendency to say no. Or to use um, Lou Priolo's, is this a fire issue or is this a swing issue? Do you remember Lou? If you weren't here for Lou, that won't make any sense. But if the consequence... Of them, of me giving them some rope and more reins here to drive the car a little bit rather than as I, as I do that, will it bring irrevocable consequences in their life? And if not, I may let them fail. Um, but that's really scary. Uh, it feels a lot like the first time that they pull out of the driveway in the car and you're not in there you know, anymore. But don't go beyond the text. That will bite you a whole lot worse than them listening to a little bit too much country music uh, until God can get a hold of their heart. Okay. Number two. Just trying to flesh yep. that out, like with young kids. 
we, everybody has house rules, mm -hmm. you know, so we're saying not to put them on the same level as biblical standards. So we still kind of teach and model the house rules. Of course. And then how do you think through that? Just like yeah. you're saying, just to make sure that the kids as they're growing up understand yeah. there's a distinction. Like, hey, this is how our family is working the angles here. Right. And then here's the biblical principles. Yeah, so obviously younger, there are different yeah. phases of parenting. And, and um, you know, so Hupa Akuo, they're under the words of their parents. So they're obeying your explicit words. And when, you know, you're the authority whenever they're young, whenever they're, they're little. And when they don't obey your words, right. you need to spank them. Right. You need to teach them that because you're, you know, instilling the fear of the Lord and that authority there. So, uh, and then that gradually, you know, you move toward honoring. So we're always commanded to honor father and mother, no matter how old we are, but we're no longer under their words, um, which is the difference for children and wives. Wives voluntarily arrange, hupatasso, voluntarily arrange themselves under the leadership of their husbands as under the Lord. Children are under the words of their, of their parents. So this is not, you know, the, the Montessori version of parenting. You just kind of free reigns, let them do whatever. There's nothing wrong with having rules and enforcing those rules and spanking them if they don't enforce those rules. Just be careful that, that they understand these are, these are rules. It, it, you don't need to, like, parse this out for them for a five-year-old. It's more when they get into the you know the middle school you know years like TCS we have a dress code over there, um, you know you have to wear a uniform you can't wear flip flops you can't have tattoos there are certain things that are there but we are careful not to tie that to heaven you know like these are the principles that these are just we 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 want to dress in a you know in a distinct specific way the liberty way. You violate the Liberty Way, it doesn't mean you're going to go to hell, you know. But these are the these are the rules, and so you know that's a principle of authority and submission to authority. Just be careful when you're when that authority is being pressed against that you don't then bring the way of the Bible down on it whenever it's not there. Well, God said so, you know, because that's what is what will cause the you know the problem. So. Um, Kind of viewing them, I had a helpful paradigm at one time viewing them like a, you know, like a seedling plant, you know, in a, in a greenhouse, and then I'm going to transplant them, um, you know, and then they're they're going to kind of grow, you know, grow on their own. So when they're in the greenhouse and they're small, they they take more and more attention. But your goal ultimately should them for them to be able to function, you know, on 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 your on their own. You don't want the thirty-year-old living in your basement, right? So, um, unless there's some extenuating circumstances that are there. Spiritual neglect number two in the home exasperates children. We have a tendency toward neglect. Fathers are often obsessed with their own hobbies and friends, thus sacrificing family time. Fathers avoid expressing love and affection. The need is intense from children. Um, Bodie Bauckham, I'm going to tell my daughter how pretty she is, beautiful she is, and that I love her because I don't want the first time that she ever hears that to be from the 16-year-old you know, that sees her. I want her to say, 
um, yeah, I know I'm pretty and I know I'm loved. My father's been telling me that from three. What else you got? Rather than them coming along and stealing their heart. So express the love and affection that doesn't make you less of a man. Um, Boys too. Fathers avoid preparing to bring the word of God to bear when instructing their children. When they're rebelling, it's too late to find a passage. Months of years of spiritual neglect is often later followed by a sudden change of of standards. So your neglect, you haven't dealt with this, and then you start seeing that manifest in your kids because of your neglect, and then you bring a rule down or the hammer down to try to correct what you didn't do and think that that's going to fix it when... It's actually the years or months of the spiritual neglect. You can't do that. You, I mean, you've you got to confess that and then work them back to the place where, where they can be under it. Fathers are often more engaged when their children are adolescents after not being so involved in early years. Um, so guilt sets in, you try to make up for lost time, self-atonement philosophy at work. Now, I do think that there is a clear biblical principle, and I think you can see this in 1 Timothy 2, that mothers are super strong influences early on. Um, and that's the way that God's designed it. In fact, 1 Timothy 2 says it's one of the ways that God undoes the stigma of the fall. You know, raising godly seed um, is what a is what a woman woman does so they're they are going to be spending more time with them they're going to be there you know typically during you know during the day so and there's a natural uh there's a natural aspect you know of that but don't start trying to parent uh your your sons or your daughters whenever they whenever they hit middle school or high school when you've been you know when you've neglected that in the early years because it won't uh it won't won't work could be children need nurturing and grace from a careful parent what does he mean by careful parent he means intentionality intentionality Uh, to be focused on the task even if you fail be intentional about about the parenting be consistent see fathers must be consistent in instruction and discipline. Learn to be consistent in tones and mood. I just had the situation this past weekend. Obviously, it was a heavy passage on Sunday morning. So Saturday, um, my daughter and my son were, were home, and I was not very talkative. I was trying to finish the study and end the study and otherwise. And I was rebuked, and they don't even know I was rebuked, by, by a kind word that my daughter said to, said to Tracy. Tracy was at Jupiter this past weekend um, for, the, for the women's conference. And my daughter, Tracy, asked, how's Dad? What's going on? And, um, and Olivia said, uh, said, well, I haven't heard a whole lot you know, out of him. I don't. I don't know exactly how she said it, but he doesn't seem like he's in, you know, he's in the best in the best mood. And Tracy said, um, "It's Saturday." Now, she was being kind, and 
in our home, you know, I turn into the sermon troll on Friday night and Saturday. Not that I'm troll-like in the way I act, but I go away. I go in the basement, and my family gives me the space to be able to, to serve you. So as your weekend ends on Sunday, we're all still in full-bore full bore ministry. And so in one sense, there was a blessing there. My wife was saying, hey, this is what's going on. There you know, shouldn't be any offense to that. But there was also a little rebuke in there. It's Saturday, meaning, huh, I asked myself the question, do I act like this a lot? Is there neglect going on in the home? I mean, why would my daughter think that I'm in a bad mood? I'm not really in a bad mood. I wasn't. I was not in a bad mood. Why would she think that? What vibe am I, am I, am I going off? Uh, am I letting off? So and now, this coming Saturday, Lord willing, I'm going to be intentional. I'm going to walk around the house really smiley, right? And I'm going to... Uh, the point is, what, huh? What's wrong with that? Yeah. I, you know, exactly. Now she's going to say, why is that acting weird? <laughs> um, being intentional about that. I mean, even thinking about that, even caring, huh, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, be intentional. Learn to be consistent in tones and, and moods. Um, be present in the home as an overseer and leader. Ethics must be predictable and consistent. Um Look at the flip side. Three. Just as bad as having extra biblical standards is being overly permissive. Proverbs 29.15. This also exasperates. Takes the heart out of them. Children want boundaries. They want something that's fixed. I remember years ago reading a book, I think, by James Dobson, which I won't recommend about anything that Dobson's done because of the psychological component, too. But I remember this illustration that he gave where they actually did a psychological experiment, children walking across a bridge that had a big ravine on both sides um, with guardrails, and they all walked all over the bridge. And there was a section of the bridge where there were no guardrails, and they all walked right in the center, you know, of the line. They didn't want to go close to the, you know, close to the edge. Boundaries are our friends. They we like those. I mean, isn't it comforting that there it, God is fixed, His word is true. You have some place to go. Um, the same thing for you know for parenting. So a child who gets his way brings shame to his mother. Here's the hatred verse. If you don't spank your child, you hate him. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. There's the intentionality. Permissiveness. What's it look like? Allowing the children to rule the home. Permissiveness allows belligerence and rebellion by not addressing it with Scripture. Remember John Piper talking about the one time that he got in his son's, I don't remember which one, in his face, like got in his face, was belligerence toward his mother. Um, 
And he said, he was, in his opinion, he was modeling a biblical principle um, because you learn from the way that you operate in, in the home. And as the husband, the wife is like the bride of, of Christ. And when a son speaks belligerently to his mother and the father, and they do that in the father's presence, and the father allows that to happen, that is a really bad paradigm. And, and he said, I reminded my son, I, I chose her, you know, I didn't choose you. And if you ever talk to her that way again in my presence, um, you know, I might sin. Making sure that they know that that you don't do that, um, and in his opinion, modeling um, the way that you view the church, allowing belligerence and rebellion, and not addressing it by scripture. It fails to discipline when children are foolish and mouthy. Can children be mouthy? Can adults be mouthy? Yeah. Fails to patiently bring the word of God to bear on in a in a current situation. So I understand. You fail in every one of these areas. So do I. The point is you keep coming back to it and you keep coming back to it. I mean, this is this is you fail in Christianity all the time, but you don't give up on that either, right? <laughs> you have the spirit and, and and God God will bear fruit. So don't be permissive. Just like don't um, be unbiblical in in your standards. Look at four. What else will exasperate them? Upholding the righteous standard of God without extending the gospel exasperates children. Well, this is huge. Constantly telling them the law. The law. God says do this. God says, don't do that. And never giving them the balm <laughs> that can help them. Don't create in their minds that what Christianity looks like is keeping the do's and the don'ts. Tell them their standards and their do's and their don'ts, but you'll never keep them. And that's the reason Jesus came to die, constantly upholding the standard of God without explaining or teaching your children that they need the saving grace of God in Christ that gives us the ability to obey exasperates children to bear the, the law of God, to hear the law of God, I should say, but, but never know where or how to access the power of to obey. Now, I understand that there was a period, maybe you, this is just not even on your radar, but there was this idea of gospel-centered parenting that that went too far. It was the same thing, the hyper-grace movement, where there's no effort. You know, you just focus on what Jesus did, and it just kind of happens you know, in sanctification. So there's the same idea, you know, just gospel, gospel, gospel. And, you know, don't teach them standards. Don't teach them character principles. Don't do that because they can't obey that anyway. Um, you know, that's unbiblical. So you give them both. Paul says you can't, but you're commanded to, so you have to run um, to the power that's there. Yeah, two other. Um, just, just about how in the first five years, we didn't have a 
Excellent. Grace and your instruction them through the Bible, all the Bible stories, and showing them the big story of the Bible mm. of grace, then they get frustrated. That's good. I read children's books that, you know, there's R.C. Sproul's got a number of them that he wrote that are excellent. You know, they're, they're allegory, um, and I'll read those to Bella. They're just the story of the gospel. And and I I'll end up I'll end up crying by the end of them. I mean they're just because I see exactly what's going on there. Um, that's a way where you're reinforcing the gospel, like you're saying. You do have to bring the law to bear, and you have to bring the rod when they break the law to bear. So finding other times or other ways to bring the gospel in, you know, kind of peppers the seasons it all together. Yeah. What is the balance? So the minute you said, what's the balance, I mean, what, what came to mind was, I don't know. I'm not going to be able to answer the, the, the perfect balance question. But you went a little bit farther, and I do think I can give some principles there. So I, I, if I understand your question, what do you do when you have a child, and obviously you want them to come to Christ, you want them to profess faith in Christ, you know, and they're talking about that because it's, it's what they see in the home. Um, but, but how do you do that in a way that doesn't produce a false profession? Um, you know, I baptize people all the time that you know prayed prayer whenever they were five. Um, I, I believe Bailey was converted when he was five or six. I mean, he was he was really young. So the first thing I would say is never discourage your child toward Christ. Like if they come to you and they want to pray and they want to seek the Lord, you know, tell them that's a really good thing. Um, encourage them in, in that in that direction. Um, listen to them. Repeat the gospel story over and over. I don't think habits are bad because you're training their palate. The lights coming on, the regeneration of the heart, you can't control. Only the Spirit does that. But he does that through the instrument of the gospel. So the more the gospel is there and the more you're applying it to their heart, that's a good thing. Don't be so quick, though, um, you know, to declare them in the kingdom. I think that's where the problem comes. Oh, you know, well, it says, and so you did, therefore you're there. When, as a child, they still are under the parent. So there still is uh, an obedience factor, and you may not be able to see the fruits of, genuine salvation until they get out from under that because what is the real evidence of course there's a moment that you you choose jesus you pray you confess him you call on his name whatever 
The work that he's doing in there gives you the ability to do that. It's a mystery of when that happens, but there is a moment where that happens. But then how do you ultimately know that took place? Well, the Bible says you'll know the mother fruits, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. What do worthy fruits of repentance look like in a six-year-old? So could they be there? Yeah, they're just harder to discern. Um, So never discourage them toward Christ. Uh, listen and explain the gospel to them over, you know, and, and over, and then begin to look for the fruits of of salvation, which is hunger for the word, a desire to be around the brethren, a, a, a you know, a wanting to know who God is and and what He's like beyond just curiosity, obedience, you know, seeing sin, what is sin and what what is not, um, and you have to discern those. You know, if if you will, um, so. you may want to add to that, help out in any way. I typically say baptism. Like Isabella has been all about baptism for probably two or three years, and i I don't I don't say no. You're not going to do that. Um, I just don't say yes. You know, because it's not time. I don't think she fully understands the gospel yet. Um, so I don't want to make a declaration. Um, I want to, you know, to, to nurture and, you know, and instruct and then observe, and then you'll you'll know um, when it's when it's time to do that. When they can under, you know, whenever they can understand. So, yeah. See a hand somewhere. It's a great question, though. Children, uh, look at four a. Children may have repetitive disobedience and have guilt and frustration with failure. Sometimes the parent is tempted to repeat, to just repeat the law without showing them the grace that's available in in Christ. This sounds something like whenever they fail, whenever they sin specifically, why would you do that? You know the Bible says X, Y, and Z. Well, of course they do. You know, but that doesn't stop you from sinning either, does it? You know, what do you need in that moment? You don't need a lecture about how you violated the Bible. You know you violated the Bible. You need the gospel. You know, in that in that moment. Every time guilt and angst is weighing them down, don't just hammer in obedience without leading your child to run to the, you know, run to the cross. Suggest that your child pray and plead with Christ in these early testings for mercy and forgiveness. What are you doing? You're developing patterns that they are going to follow. The Bible has all the answers. You know, the gospel is where you run whenever you sin. Mom and dad sin too. The church is is the central part of, of life. Believers is where you find your fellowship and, and everything, you know, uh, around you um, you pray you ask God for help and mercy um, don't just assume their first profession of faith is sincere further test men cover false professions such exposure is good in that it drives us back to prayer and evangelizing our children um Something that I neglected to, to say to Paul, but right here it is. You pray. 
pray every morning for my children that they would you know bear fruit persevere manifest and there are times when I prayed I don't see it at all in fact I see the opposite you know please Lord protect them from this or a tendency that I may see them going in the in the direction of and and, and and as we talked about even with salvation, you don't feel any more impotent than whenever it comes to salvation. Because there's nothing that you can do in the heart of that. I mean, you can't reach in there and do anything. It's all external. And, you know, you sat under, I don't know, a hundred sermons before the light bulbs came on. You know, the light bulb came on. Um, so I'm pleading with the Lord. Only you can open their eyes. Grant them this, you know, Lord. You're absolutely just and righteous, whatever you do, but... You know, but I'm asking you for this with tears, um, pleading with, you know, with God, and so seeing some of that lack or them their lack of understanding or even their sin does a good work in us. It drives us back to prayer and a desire to you know to to evangelize. Go there rather than oh no, everybody's going to think that I'm a bad parent because you know Junior's not walking straight. Um, you are a bad parent. So am I. Um, get over it and go to the gospel, right? Five. Parents' unwillingness to be transparent exasperates. Parents should be transparent and broken about their weakness and their sin before their children. Um, doesn't mean air every piece of dirty laundry that you have, every struggle that you have, that it's age appropriate and otherwise, but in general, your children should know that you don't have it all together, that you're still in the process of sanctification, and that you sin. And one of the best ways to do that is when you do sin against them, you confess your sins, B, and confess it, a model for them what confession looks like, according to God's standard. Use self-indicting language that's consistent with God's word. I'm sorry, Daddy was in a bad mood. You know... I don't know why you thought I was angry on Saturday. I wasn't angry, you know. And besides, I'm studying to preach God's words for God's people, so you should make it easier on me in order to do that, right? That's not the thing that you should do. What did I just do? I just created the idea in 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 my daughter's mind that that the church is you know, is encroaching on her life somehow. It's bad to study a sermon. You know, I've got to be, I've got to be, I've got to be sinful and a jerk while I'm studying for a sermon, so I can go tell everybody else how to live. That's not a really good thing to do, right? So, if I sense that and I and, and I examine my heart and say, "Wow, I, I probably did come across, you know, a certain way," I'm going to go to her and I'm going to say, "Honey, I need to ask you forgiveness. I, I really wasn't angry, but..." Something obviously on my face or otherwise communicated that to you, and you know that's the last thing that you know that, that I would want to do. I've asked my wife for forgiveness, children forgiveness. Um, you know, before I stepped into the pulpit, there's this there's this pulpit factor for preachers. You're thinking I don't want to go in the pulpit whenever I'm unreconciled with you know with my wife or otherwise. Do the same practice. You don't preaching, but do the same practice before you know you come to church and then do it every day. Confess it biblically. We're particularly slow to admit our faults because it's hard to be criticized. Transparency requires confession. 
How else will we with integrity demonstrate and teach what our children should do? So some of your your lack of sanctification and and weakness and and sin may be for the purpose of teaching them what they're supposed to do. And I'll rush through this final one because we're out of time. Unresolved tension between parents exasperates children. Unresolved tension. So your marriage, your relationship with your wife can exasperate tension. It models a disobedient way to deal with conflict. It denies the redemptive power of the gospel. And it creates an atmosphere of hopelessness. So manage your relationship with your wife. It may have more effect on your kids than you than you actually know. So I would affirm to you, uh, encourage you to read the appendix, Ungodly Dating Relationships, How to Avoid Getting Stung, if you are in that phase. It's excellent. Um, it's in the back. But I have been thoroughly convicted by this lesson once again. And I'm thankful for what Paul Tripp said. And the title of our study is Grace in Granite. We need lots of grace to develop the granite, don't we? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for these men. Help us, Lord. Uh, we are weak and frail and we fail constantly. And yet you are a good heavenly Father. And uh, you will help us. I am so thankful that the trajectory, the ultimate um, trajectory for our children and how they turn out and otherwise doesn't rest fully on our shoulders, um, that, uh, that you fill in lots of gaps um, by your grace you know, that I've created and still do create by my failure. So encourage us in the gospel and help us to, to strive in these areas in Jesus' name. Amen.